Just three generations after Jesus ascended into heaven, Christianity was illegal. Can you imagine that? Christianity was illegal. Now, that was during a day when there were all kinds of other religions permeating every society. And some of those religions were just horrible, absolutely horrible. They were sacrificing babies to false gods. They were sacrificing virgins to their gods, placing them on altars and taking their lives. Witchcraft was making its way through all the cultures of the region. And it was perfectly legal. Christianity, however, illegal. That's mind-boggling to me. If you carried the name Christian attached to your name by the year 160 AD when Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome, you did so at the risk of imprisonment, torture, or even death just by being called a Christian. Now let's set that aside for just a second and I want to chase a rabbit. Maybe you weren't aware of this. It took 10 to 15 years after the ascension of Jesus into heaven after the establishment of the church, before the name Christian even came on the scene. Prior to that, when a a person would give their life to Jesus Christ, they were defined by other words, words like believer or disciple or brother or this one. This is very, very popular in the New Testament. People that had given their lives to Jesus Christ were called followers of the way. And all of that was tied to John chapter 14, verse 6 passage of scripture where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. So New Testament believers called themselves followers of the way, the way to heaven, the way to the Father. But 10 or 15 years after Jesus left this earth and the church was established, the term Christian popped up. The Bible actually shows that to us. Let me show it to you. We're going to go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11 Starting in verse 25, we're just going to read a couple verses. Let me show you where the word Christian comes from. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now that's how the Bible introduces that title, Christian. What the Bible doesn't tell us, and we have to go to extra biblical writings for this and historians to find this out, is that term was not a term of endearment when it first showed up in the city of Antioch. In fact, it was given by people that were opposed to all of Christianity. The term was coined by people that wanted to mock the things of God through Jesus Christ. So they started calling the believers, the disciples, the brothers, the followers of the way, Christians, as a means of deriding them. It was an offensive term. However, the people that received that title didn't see it that way at all. In fact, they held it up as a badge of honor. You're trying to mock me, but I'm telling you I am a Christian. And if you're going to mock me in my faith, mock me in my faith. I am a Christian. The name stuck. It just stuck. And it's been around since then. So now let's go back to the second century. That happened in the first century or after Jesus, 10, 15 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. By 160 AD, to have that name attached to you put you at great risk. There is a fellow named Sanctus that actually illustrates that risk perfectly. You see, when Marcus Aurelius had passed this law making it illegal for anybody to be a Christian or to worship Jesus Christ, people like Sanctus, who was a deacon in the church in southern Europe, in fact, out of Vienna, he chose to continue to stand for his faith. 
and then he was arrested. He was put on trial in a public forum. The people that would accuse him wanted him to recant of his faith. They wanted him to publicly declare that he did not believe in Jesus Christ, that he was not filled with the Holy Spirit, that the grace of God had not come to rest on him through the gift of his Son. They just wanted him to publicly announce that. Sanctus, as he sat in front of all of his accusers, this just gives me goosebumps to think about, and I've, I've been through this story a number of times, all he would say every time they questioned him, the exact same phrase, I am a Christian. They would ask him different questions. He would respond the same way every time. I am a Christian. When they could not get through to him, they would escalate all of their attempts, all of their efforts. It got brutal at times. He would refer the same way. I am a Christian. It's the only thing that would come out of his mouth. A secular historian would actually record this. He would say that Sanctus girded himself so strongly against his accusers that he would not give them his name, nor would he tell them the nation or even the city that he was from. He would simply reply in the Roman tongue, I am a Christian. That's all he would say. So the emperor said, we're going to have to take things up a notch. They took him out of the courtroom and into the amphitheater, where the first attempt to get him to bend his knee or bow to Rome or do what the government wanted came in the form of making him run the gauntlet. Painful experience in front of tens of thousands of people. When he got to the end of it, they questioned him again, wanting to know who he was, wanting to know where he was from. Basic questions. All he would say was, I am a Christian. Then the emperor said, well, if that didn't get his attention, let's try something else. They subjected him to wild beast. Maybe you've seen this on, on different movies. The beasts are chained up and they can only go so far against that chain. But Sanctus had to get through them, even though they were chained up. Well, the chains were long enough that they could just barely cross over and they could catch the individual that was running through them. So as he ran through the wild beast, they would leap at him and grab pieces of his flesh, biting him and just ripping it off. He got to the end of that and they questioned him again. And this time the emperor was positive that he would recant. So they asked him more directed questions. And over and over and over again, he would say, I am a Christian. That's all that would come out of his mouth. The historian said, even after he had gone through all of the torture, after he had gone through all of that, the response was the same as it had been from the beginning. I am a Christian. The emperor couldn't take it any longer, so he decided to take his life. This is how they killed Sanctus. They strapped him to a burning iron chair and let him roast in front of tens of thousands of people. And all the while, he said over and over and over again, I am a Christian. It's all that would come out of his mouth. That's a powerful faith, my friends. It really is. It determined how Sanctus lived, and it determined how he died. Can you imagine the ripple effects of martyrs just like him from that second century on as the church continued to explode? 
The government was upset with this new church. The government was upset with the fact that people's lives were being changed. So they put them on trial. Think again about everything that was happening. All of these other people being murdered in the name of religion. And the thing that made Christianity illegal was the fact that the followers of the way, the Christians, were holding to the Old Testament law to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. And the New Testament law that Jesus added to it to love their neighbor as themselves. And that was a crime, a crime punishable by death. Yet people like Sanctus would stand up and say, I am a Christian. This is what matters to me. This is what defines me. There are some preachers today that would tell you that that kind of faith is a faith of old, that it doesn't exist anymore. There are some other preachers that would tell you that it does exist in today's culture and in today's world, just not in America. It exists overseas on foreign mission fields. There are still people that believe that way. I would disagree with both of those preachers. I would tell you that that is not a faith of old that has ceased to exist. Not at all. I believe it's alive and well among Christians today. And I don't believe that it's just something that happens in distant lands. I believe that that type of faith exists in the United States of America. I believe that it exists right here in Libby, Montana. There are people that would say in the face of horrible torture and torment and the risk of death, I am a Christian. And they would never pull back. They would never shrink back. They would never give up that declaration because that's who they are. That defines their life. It defines defines their character. It defines their hope. I am a Christian. Some of you are thinking, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm there. I don't know if I can say that that is true of my walk with Christ. Well, I want to give you some tools this morning that maybe will help with that. Some biblical understanding of how you get to a faith just like that. That says, I am willing not only to die for my Lord, but to live for my Lord. It's pretty exciting stuff when it happens. In order to get this whole thing started, go with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 28. Writer of Hebrews gives a launching pad for that type of faith that many, many believers today have found themselves on, and it has led them to this type of a belief. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. To get to a place where we would say, in the face of horrible torture and torment, that we are a Christian, even under the punishment of death, to get to that place oftentimes means that we have to start with an understanding that we are receiving a kingdom. We are receiving an inheritance that cannot be shaken. Nothing will ever change it. Nothing will ever turn it upside down. Nothing will ever rock it. The Bible would actually say we're receiving a kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. It will not even disintegrate. This is a kingdom that will last forever, an inheritance that will last forever. When a person comes to know Jesus Christ, this is what happens. Your name is written in what the Bible would refer to as the Lamb's Book of Life, but it is also written on a title deed. You become an inheritor. You become an heir to the kingdom of God right alongside Jesus Christ. The best of God waits for every believer. 
the best of God is out there for every believer. I would offer to you that we can start living in heaven right here on this earth because that's relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. But if that isn't enough for you, it's what waits for us after this life is over. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And your name gets written on that title deed. Now, like any inheritance, it has little to nothing to do with what you have done. The inheritance is given to you based on the work of those that have gone before you. The inheritance is yours because of what Jesus Christ did. And it is extended to you through the grace of God. When he said, I love you so much that I will send my son to die for you, that you might receive this kingdom that cannot be shaken. It was done because of somebody else's work and somebody else's grace, but you're the recipient of it. It really doesn't get any better than that. You can't work your way into it. You can't buy your way into it. You can't be blessed into it by somebody else. It is solely done by the work of Jesus Christ and the grace of God the Father. Your name gets written on that title deed. You receive this kingdom that cannot be shaken. When people understand that, when they embrace that, something changes within them. They begin to live like Sanctus did, declaring with their life, with their words, with their actions, with their thoughts, I am a Christian. That's who I am. That's where I live. That's what defines me. That's pretty exciting stuff. I've become convinced through 44 years of working with God, walking with God, not working with God, walking with God, that when people embrace that, something happens in them. I believe that for some, they can see the invisible and hear the inaudible. Others find themselves guided so closely by the Holy Spirit that they are walking exactly where God wants them to be. They're doing exactly what God wants them to do. And even in the face of difficult circumstances, they're able to say, God is leading me through this. God is taking me someplace. They can see the invisible and hear the inaudible. Through 44 years of walking with God, and and let me just say this again, and if you've been in church with us very long at all, you know this is true. I have been a Christian literally all of my life. I do not have one of those testimonies that says, I was walking out here in the world doing horrible things and and got delivered from it by the grace of God. I do not have a testimony like that. And those that do, man, praise the Lord for the grace that has been extended to you. What a cool testimony you have. But if you have a testimony like mine that says you were born and raised in the church and you have been with the Lord forever, don't you ever feel bad about that because that's the greatest testimony there is. I've never been apart from the Lord, and I can say that with all honesty. That doesn't mean I've always done everything right. doesn't mean that I have lived a sinless life, not at all. It simply means that I have always known God, and I have always been able to call myself a Christian. The time came when I had to make my faith my own, like everybody does, and I can vividly remember making that decision to say that I don't want to be called a Christian solely because my parents are Christians. I want this to be my faith. I want to own it myself. And I made that decision. And folks, for 44 years, that's never been broken. I could never say that there was a time that I walked away and then came back. For 44 years, I've been there with the Lord. And I don't regret it one bit. And as I can look back through that history, I can say being called a Christian has been one of the greatest things ever. Now, one of the privileges of 
having been the pastor of this church for just over 10 years now, comes in the fact that I have been able to watch many of your lives for an extended amount of time. And I have seen many of you live the same way, thrilled that you are a Christian, living it every day of your life and growing in it every day of your life getting deeper and deeper in that walk, growing in that relationship, watching it strengthening you has been a wonderful privilege and joy for me and I know for our elders. It's the same thing. As they talk about where people have been and where they're at today, smiles come across their faces and they say, isn't it fun to be a part of that? And isn't it exciting to see what God is doing in people's lives as folks begin to declare passively and aggressively, I am a Christian. You want to know how I've seen some of that happen? Here's practical examples for you. I have seen Christian business owners in this church that have lived that term. I am a Christian on a regular basis. It's evident with their employees and it is evident with the community that we live in that they are declaring for everyone to know that they are a follower of the way. They are a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a a main keystone element of who they are. I have seen employees working for bosses that were not believers that have lived the same way. I am a Christian. Even at times when it's difficult to be a Christian, they have declared it with their lives. I've seen marriages that have had to overcome natural bents and desires within each individual, overcome those and declare that I am a Christian. Therefore, I will love my husband this way and I will love my wife this way, the way God has taught me to. And they're living in the joy of a Christian marriage. I've watched parents make the hard decisions with their children. When the world would say, you ought to do it this way, they have said, but you know what? That doesn't work for us because we are Christians and we will raise our children this way according to the word of God. Even if it's not popular, we will raise our children according to the word of God, saying like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what they've done because they are Christian. It's amazing to watch, truly amazing to watch. I've watched teachers and administrators in our school system declare that they are Christians. I've watched students in our school systems declare that they are Christians and live it out. I've watched coaches declare that they are Christian and live it out. And it makes a difference in the students' lives that they touch. I've watched people all through our church and through our community do that. And it's exciting to see because they have embraced what the writers of Hebrews would say. Listen to this. This is verse 29 if you still have your Bible open there. For our God is a consuming fire. They have been consumed by their relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's nothing better. The world might say that that's something that should never happen. You should never be consumed with any one thing. But the Bible would teach being consumed with God is a good thing because our God is a consuming fire permeating every aspect of our life. You know what it does when we get consumed, does for us and in us, when we get consumed by the Lord? Brings us to life. It brings us out of death and into life. Go with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul would teach this in its great teaching. In Jesus Christ, you not only become a Christian, but you come alive. You move from death to life because of Jesus. That's a great promise. Now, I want to move out of that wonderful teaching of the Apostle Paul into some of the deep waters of the Bible. And some of this is kind of hard to understand, so stay with me as we go through it. Hopefully, it's going to make sense to you. I have a group of guys that I pray with on Sunday morning. They're just a joy in my life. Before we start our first service, we gather together in my office, and oftentimes I try thoughts out on them before we ever make it into church. They're, in essence, guinea pigs. It's pretty cool because it's for a sermon, therefore God doesn't mind me using them. So I, I tried it on them this morning, and now I want to try it with you as well. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take just a minute or two and imagine to yourself or for yourself that you are talking to somebody for the very first time. This is the first time that you have ever talked to them. They are learning all kinds of things about you. They're questioning things, and they're learning things and putting it all together. They want to know about your background. They want to know about your family. They want to know what you do for a living. They want to know about your hobbies, your interests, all that kind of stuff. And they're collecting all this information. And now, all of a sudden, they have come to your faith. And they ask you to de describe your faith with one word, just one word. I want you to think about what that word would be. Take just a minute or two, think about what that one word would be. See if you can come up with it. Maybe you want to write it down on a piece of paper. If you have your worship folder with you, just write it down on a piece of paper. It'll keep you honest. Wow, you guys are a lot quieter than first service. They started talking among one another, cheating like mad, but you guys, you're doing it. All right, here we go. Hopefully the word came to mind really fast. So I'm going to put some of you on the spot because... I'm the preacher, and I'm up here. I can do this. So here we go. Trent Olberg, what word did you come up with? Love. Love. Very good. Mark Lauer, what word did you come up with? Christian. Jeff Hoff, what did you come up with? <laughs> we'll take that. Describing your faith as faith. That's totally okay. Jeremy Rank, what did you come up with? Jesus. Very good. Mike Bradeen, what did you come up with? Christian. All right, you're cheating off of the people on the other side. That's all right. Albert, what word did you come up with? forgiveness, good word. Well, Jim, what'd you come up with? Responsibility. All very, very good words that describe your faith. And hopefully everybody sitting in this room has one of those words, a word that describes your faith. Now we said just a few minutes ago that the words that were used to describe early Christians were things like disciple, believer, brother, and follower of the way. But there is one word in the New Testament that overshadows all of those. Let me show it to you. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22. Again, the Apostle Paul writes these words. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. 
Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. Now, if you have a pen or a pencil with you, you might want to do this in your Bible. Let's go back through that first sentence. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. That word slave is actually the New Testament word used more times than any other word to describe the followers of Jesus Christ. The word Christian shows up three times in the New Testament, twice in the book of Acts and once in the book of 2 Peter. But the word slave, referring to Christians, followers of the way, believers, disciples, brothers, and so on, shows up 124 times. Big difference. From Christian to slave, three times, 124 times. The interesting thing, though, is this. Modern translations of the Bible, the New International Version, the New American Standard Version, are you ready for this? Even the King James Version of the Bible distort that word. Let me show you what I mean. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's go over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, we're not going to go any further than that. If you still have that pen or pencil in your hand, you might want to circle the word servants. In the original language, which, by the way, I am not a student of the original language. They wouldn't allow me to take it in Bible college. My grades in English were too bad. So... In fact, that's exactly what happened. I signed up for it. The Greek professor said, Phil, I have seen your grades in English. You don't even need to think about another language. Thank you very much. So I am not a student of the original languages. I have to use other resources to see this and other people that I accept as authorities on this. The word servants in the original language is the exact same word as slaves in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. When King James said, I want you to translate the Bible into the language that everybody can understand, the translators came across that word so many times, they realized that it was not politically correct. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, not politically correct. And it gave a, a concept that was too harsh in their estimation. So they began to change the word slave to servant. And you see it all through the Bible, where you'll find that somebody declares themselves a servant of Jesus Christ or a servant of the gospel. Well, more often than not, the literal translation is actually slave. Now, you might think to yourself, well, what's the big deal? Slave versus servant. And again, with the guys that I pray with on Sunday morning, I tested this out on them. I said, what's the difference between slave and servant? And Rod Brossman, without missing a beat, said this, and he was spot on. You become a servant by choice. Oftentimes, you are hired to be a servant. You are a slave by ownership. You have choices as a servant you have no choices as a slave. There's a big difference between the two. So for the Apostle Paul to say that he was a servant of Jesus Christ diminishes some of the relationship. He was a slave of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he declared that. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now let's swim down just a little bit deeper in some of the deep water of the Bible. What you will usually find is that when that word slave is used, it is tied to the concept of being a bond slave. Culturally, we have no idea what a bond slave is, but during the days of the writing of the New Testament it made perfect sense to people. This is the way a person would become a bond slave. Now, I'm going to illustrate it for you just so it makes perfect sense. Is Matt Warner in here? Matt's sitting right back at the sound booth. Let's just imagine that Matt looks at his life situation. And he says, I have a wife and four children. It is very expensive to raise four kids. 
I have taken on more than I can handle. I have more responsibility than I can deal with. I'm going to need some help with this. So he looks at all kinds of different options. He says, I have one job. Maybe I could get two jobs. Maybe I could get three jobs and I'll be able to raise these children. But I keep reading all kinds of statistics that say that to raise a kid in today's society costs $200,000 from birth to 18. So Matt's thinking that's $800,000 over the course of the next 18 years. How am I going to pull that off? I have no hope. I can't feed them, I can't give them a place to live, and I certainly can't educate them given all of these physical options. So he comes to me and he says to me, Phil, you're the greatest man I know. You are kind and generous beyond all imagination. You are a wonderful individual to a fault. I would really like to become your bond slave. Would you let me do that? Well, I have to step back and think about that because what he's asking me to do is take not only him but his entire family into my household where he would become my bond slave and I would assume the responsibility not only for his care and his wife's care but the care of his children. I would educate them, I would feed them, I would do everything for them. Financially, I would provide everything for them. So I think about it for a while, and I look at Matt, and I think, well, Matt's pretty strong, and he's got a couple strapping young boys growing up. They could be a lot of help when it's time to put up hay. They could be a lot of help mowing the yard. They could be a lot of help pushing the plow or doing whatever it is that I needed them to do. So I say to Matt, let's do it. I want you to become my bond slave. I will accept the relationship. And Matt says, all right, so will I. In today's culture, we would shake hands, and that would be the end of it, and Matt would move his family into our house, and we would take care of them, and so on. During those days, it was a little more extreme than that. Here's what we would do. I would take Matt out into the center of the court, the community court, maybe right in front of the courthouse, if you need to understand how this would work, where there was a huge beam buried in the ground and sticking straight up out of it. Then Matt and I would walk up to that beam. I would grab him by the ear take his ear, put it on the beam, where I would then grab a chisel and a hammer, and I would drive a hole in his earlobe and then hang a ring in his ear, signifying that he was my slave. I might even decide that that wasn't enough, and I would tattoo him or brand him. He would bear my mark as my slave. I want to point out to you that Matt has earrings and a tattoo. <laughs> I don't want to discuss our relationship any more than that. I just want to point those things out. From that point on, I've accepted the responsibility for him and he has agreed to be my slave and do what I want him to do. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Book of Galatians. Go there with me, would you? Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of of Jesus Christ. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying that he is a bond slave. He is a slave to Jesus Christ. And he has no regrets. Because at the moment he became a slave to Jesus Christ, he came alive. Everything changed for him. He moved from death to life. Nobody would teach that more pointedly in the New Testament than this man. He bears the marks of Jesus Christ, and he has no regrets. My body shows whose I am. My body shows who I belong to. My life shows 
who I belong to. That's what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And folks, I would offer to you that that's what it means to be called a Christian. My body, my life shows the marks of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. He loved me. He purchased me. I am his. And I will live for him forever no matter what. Even if that means having to answer repeatedly, I am a Christian. That's who I am. Listen to what Erwin McManus says about this. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you so you can see it. To have the Spirit of God dwelling within the heart of someone who chooses a domesticated faith is like having a tiger trapped within a cage. You are not intended to be a spiritual zoo where people can look at God in you from a safe distance. You are a jungle where the Spirit roams wild and free in your life. You are the recipient of the God who cannot be tamed. You are no longer a prisoner of time and space, but a citizen of the kingdom of God. God is not a sedative that keeps you calm and under control by dulling your senses. He does quite the opposite. He awakens your spirit to be truly alive. To become a slave of Jesus Christ does that very thing for us. It makes us alive. I hope you have experienced that. I know many of you have. I know some of the rest of you long for that relationship with Jesus. If that's where you find yourself, in the midst of that longing, we want to help you find who He really is. If you have found yourself coming very close to it and then pushing back, getting right up to the edge of that type of relationship with God and then pushing back, we want to help you close the gap. Through the use of the Bible and through the use of the Holy Spirit and God's leading, we want to help you with that. All you have to do this morning is just respond to our invitation. People will talk with you about that very thing, how to have that type of relationship with the Lord. I would also tell you, and I'm going to come back up in a few minutes and share some more about this with you, that for the next several weeks, I am going to be preaching on what it means to come alive in Jesus Christ, to have that type of relationship where you are no longer caging Jesus Christ so that people can glance from a distance and see him, but rather you are loose in the jungle, touching people affecting people in his name, declaring by the very essence of who you are that you are a Christian, that you belong to God. We're going to be doing that for four or five weeks. I hope you'll be here for it. It'll be good teaching from the Bible, and we all need to hear it. But if you have not gotten to that place yet where you could understand a relationship with the Lord through his son, you got to start right there. And I encourage you to start today. Why don't you stand and pray with us, and then we'll offer this invitation. And Whatever your needs might be, just go over to this door to my right, your left. Somebody will be there. They will meet you. They will pray with you. They will help you through whatever you need help with. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is uh, it's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you want to bring us from death to life. It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have waiting for us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is a good news of our lives to declare with other people that we are Christians. We are disciples, believers, brothers and sisters, followers of the way. We are Christians. What others would try to mock, Lord, we will use as a means of declaring our love for you. Make us bold in that. Father, these next few moments require a great deal of boldness, bravery and courage for people to close the gap between themselves and you. I'm praying that they'll do that, that they'll use this time
for you and for themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.